0: Quinn.
1: hey Lindsay
0: how you doing man
1: it is hot already in Florida
0: yes um I know that people get so sick of Floridians like complaining about how hot it is even though we know every year it's gonna get hot and then we're gonna rub it in people's faces when winter comes yep but somebody yesterday made the comparison to uh, Florida feels like the inside of a dog's mouth.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I
0: think that's a really accurate and very visceral way to describe how it feels in Florida right now.
1: Yep. The same, the smells, everything in some places.
0: Right. So for new listeners.
1: What do we do here? Yeah. What is this? We're
0: not here to talk about Florida weather or compare it to really gross things. Welcome to Viral. Viral. So this is a show where two public health nerds talk about the history of plagues disease outbreaks, and the people who work behind the scenes to keep us safe and healthy.
1: Yeah. And, um... What's your um, name? I am Quinn (laughs) Lundquist.
0: (laughs) I'm Lindsay Grove.
1: Yep. And we're both public health nerds, the aforementioned ones. Yes. Yeah. I... Just in case you were confused. And today, we're going to talk about bodily fluids. Not just all bodily fluids, but... A specific bodily fluid. And it's not poop, because we already did poop as we did that one. We might yeah. we
0: might do a follow up, but it's well not that could that be one.
1: a box set oh, when we I get like through that. all of the bodily like fluids. That. it could just be the viral
0: But on VHS.
1: Yep. Oh boy. No, yeah. today we are going to talk about blood. Ooh. Yeah. It's like Halloween in June.
0: Yeah. It's like the reason I didn't go into nursing or medicine, but went into public health. Right. Because I don't like blood. But I also find it really interesting.
1: Yeah. It, it, well, it's pretty useful.
0: Yeah, it's have. very
1: useful. Um, and we don't really think about just how important it is until... I mean, I guess that's with everything. Until something goes horribly sure. wrong. And you need it. You need a lot of it. Yeah. And what happens uh, when you need a lot of blood? You get a transfusion.
0: Where did... Well... Okay, so you're gonna get a transfusion. Where does that, where does that other blood come from? Where does the blood
1: come from? That's what we're we're gonna talk about today. We are. I know. And, I mean, you know, it's summer movie season, (laughs) although the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, with after Endgame, although they're starting up with the new Spider-Man Far From Home, so that should be pretty interesting. Should be. Now, when you go see Spider-Man Far From Home, you may notice a big red bus. Or a blood mobile outside of a movie theater enticing people to go in, donate some blood, keyword donate, and get free movie tickets or a t-shirt. Have you ever thought about kind of how weird that is that people in hospitals who need blood are getting blood from people who were either... Bored, too lazy to go just buy a movie ticket or genuinely are nice people who actually s- schedule this thing randomly, but probably did it outside of their uh, office building or on a college campus and not like in a facility that um, specializes in this sort of thing.
0: Yeah, thank, thank you, lazy people and those who also really like free movie tickets. I mean,
1: I did, I won't lie, I saw those t-shirts and stuff, and I'd be like, I kind of want that shirt. Oh, I've got an hour to kill. I'll go donate some blood.
0: And you get a cookie.
1: They'll give typically. you a cookie, maybe some juice. Yep. Oh, man. I love me they some take free care. juice. They take that's, care of you. That's what they do with the college students, especially. They're mm-hmm. like, here's some cookies and juice. Give us your blood. Yep. You can actually go to a facility um, and schedule an appointment to donate blood, but I imagine that's, like, a small percentage of people who um And also, like, who do that. are those people? They do it for the thrill. The
0: thrill of blood donation. <laughs> yep. That's right. Tap that vein.
1: <laughs> so, hey, have you ever thought about how weird this system is? Um, you know, random strangers are just giving blood. Well, let's go back in our time machine and talk Ooh. about... The original form of, uh, I guess, blood removal, <laughs> which was bloodletting, which was I itself- just love that you call it blood removal. I wasn't say like blood removed. Can you? I would say do- donation, but they don't actually really do anything with the blood and the bloodletting. They just sort of like collect it in a jar and I don't know, dump it out.
0: Sell it to vampires on. Sell it the to
1: vampires or magicians maybe yeah, for or- their blood rituals. Yeah. Um. But bloodletting has been around for hundreds of years as a treatment, and it was thought to be a way to relieve nausea, pain, and a whole host of other illnesses. Um, Actually, I learned this when I was researching for this episode. The red and white striped pole outside of a barber shop originally meant that while you get your hair cut, you could also be bled. It was a barber surgeon who practiced bloodletting. Ew. Right? That's... That's one of those weird things that sort of just survived.
0: So it's like, you know, getting your laundry done while going tanning? Is that sort of like the (laughs) modern
1: equivalent? Yeah, gym tan laundry, but it's like (laughs) blood, haircut.
0: Hopefully not diet. (laughs) Smoothie?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Greek mythology has many tales of blood transfusion to recapture lost youth. The subject was bled and the ancient veins filled with rich elixir. The latter, brewed in a bronze cauldron, contained root herbs, seeds and flowers, strong juices, pebbles from the forest shores of the oceans, hoarfrost taken at the full of the moon, a hoot owl's wings and flesh, a werewolf's entrails, the fillet of a snake, the liver of a stag, and the eggs and head of a crow, which has been alive for nine centuries."
0: So I'm assuming you could probably get this in like ancient Greek Costco. Is that yeah, weird? Yeah. It
1: is like the one stop shop for your blood elixir.
0: Oh man, we're all out
1: of, we're all out of 900 year old crow.
0: crow. It's so oh,
1: jeez. Um, so the first time, I mean, we were doing blood transfusions in the 1600s, but it mostly, it was like testing between dogs and sheep and stuff. Then we started doing blood transfusions where the blood of a dog or a sheep was inserted into a human, which I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that one. And then for a good hundred years, we were transfusing milk into people, into them. That makes me physically nauseous. Like cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk. They're like, you're sick. Let me give you some milk, but in your vein, in your vein. Um, and the first like human to human transfusions, they would drink it. The blood, not the milk. The blood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gross. Yeah, it's it's weird. Well, rumor has it that in fourteen ninety two, the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and doth enslaved the people too, which is a little something I just.
0: Wow, that's a ditty. If I just remembered one. one.
1: That's the remix. That's the remix. <laughs> Pope Innocent the Third is rumored to have received a blood transfusion by having the blood of three ten-year-old boys put in his body. And as payment to the boys, they received some of the Pope's blood.
0: Wow. What a great, what a great way to border.
1: Right? Um, all three boys oh, did die.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And also the Pope died.
0: There seems to be some sort of, you know, historical thread here that maybe I'm just, I can't <laughs> put my finger on.
1: Uh, yeah. It's kind of one of those weird stories. Um, and some people think that it's made up to slander the Pope's doctor who was Jewish. So there's just, there's... You know, you got your blood from the boys, and you got your sick pope, and you got your anti-Semitism. It's just a classic...
0: Classic gumbo classic of story. just bigotry
1: and Yay. grossness. Yikes. And, you know, this was hundreds of years before we even knew about blood types. So mm-hmm. on battlefields, you know, during the Civil War, World War I, um, it wasn't really until World War Two that we had the system of blood banking and all of that set up, but... In, in, you know, the early 1900s, you would receive a transfusion and your body might just reject it because it was a different blood type than yours. Do you know how many blood types there are? Like the major blood types.
0: There are five. Five? Yeah.
1: What are, okay. What are they?
0: A, B, A, B. Oh, wait. And O. And O. So
1: there's just four. And
0: then there's ABO, which is super rare.
1: Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So then we can say there's five. I guess. I guess. Am I wrong? I've only, like, most places see it as four. listed as four. Yeah. But, uh, or or three, and just list A, B as a kind of... Oh, I guess that makes but sense. But I will say there's four. We'll say four. And then there's also, like, a positive and negative A minus, A plus element, um, and the RH factor, which, mm-hmm. you know, but for the purposes of this, you know, just know that there's basically four main types with some um, more information. So, one other interesting thing about blood during pregnancy is that the fetus can have a different blood type from the mother.
0: Right, because it's...
1: Yeah, it's, it could have the father's genes. Right. And, and that can, like, create some problems sometimes, um, and they can give you an RH factor shot and, like, try to monitor your situation. But I just like, isn't that interesting? Because yeah. you're, like, basically just harboring this other organism and sharing nutrients and stuff, but you may have completely different blood types. Okay. Body
0: is just incredible. I
1: know. So back to blood donation. Um, one of the first important steps, one of the things that we had to do was figure out not just blood types and match people with their correct type, but also how to store the stuff without it going bad, because mm-hmm. it'll go bad within a couple hours. And then you got gross, dirty old, you got sticky, coagulated blood. That's not going to do anything for you. So gross. Um in 1914, we discovered that sodium citrate can anticoagulate blood, which basically means just keep it liquid, allowing it to be stored for hours, mm. hours and hours, or days. Yeah, it's like, I can imagine, like, one guy who's dying is getting... I can't, they didn't have, like, a big system of donating blood. It was mostly, like, patients who were not doing so well, but it wasn't until, like, the 40s that we had more of a organized blood donation system. It was mostly soldiers and stuff mm-hmm. donating blood to someone who just got their leg blown off. Um cool, 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 cool. cool. Because the first ever Blood Bank opened in Leningrad in nineteen thirty two. But the guy who coined the term blood bank, uh coined this term in Chicago and his name was Bernard Fantas, and he pretty much looks like a vampire. I
0: was just saying is he a vampire? Because um if your last name is Fantas, I'm yep. Yep, Look at- Look at that beard. That's I mean a the, the beard alone screams I suck people's blood yeah. and enjoy it.
1: I mean that I guy's need it to survive. Vampire. Yeah. He actually changed the name. It was um like a blood preservation center or something and then at the last minute he goes, "No, no, no, I'm going to change it." Blood bank.
0: <laughs> you can take that to the blood bank. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, originally, many blood banks paid the, um, donors. I mean, they're not donating, uh-huh. but donors for their blood. But by 1970, the U.S. blood banks transitioned to a, um, volunteer donor system. In 1974, the U.S. government yielded to the calls of the Red Cross and established an end to paid donations for transfusion use. Huh. Um, it's not actually illegal, but all of the bags have to be labeled either volunteer or paid. Interesting. And most hospitals won't accept it if it says paid. But you can donate blood and be paid for it um, for research studies, Mm, for uh pharmaceutical studies. And if you like, I don't know if they have extra. I have no idea. Maybe they would Uh go to a hospital they don't want to motivate people purely by money because they could potentially lie about their medical history. If mm-hmm. they know they don't qualify, um, they could try to lie about it to receive compensation. So the development and diagnosis of the first cases of AIDS in the U S occurred in 1981, cr- causing a flurry of caution and concern and perhaps mm-hmm. overreaction. Yep, And we, you know, we see all of these various companies around for um, blood donation, but the Red Cross is kind of the major player mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to this, this industry. Um, and they'll also ec- collect excess of donate- donated blood in the event of, or to prepare for like a mass casualty scenario mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. All right. So I just have some more blood facts that <laughs> I wanted to tell you about. Cool. One unit of blood can be separated into different components. You're probably familiar with these, but maybe not in terms of what they actually are. Mm -hmm. You got red blood cells, you have plasma, you have platelets, and you have this other thing called cryoprecipitate. Red blood cells live for about 120 days in your circulatory system, Mm -hmm. but red blood cells can be stored for up to 42 days in a refrigerator outside Mm. the body. So when, they, when you donate blood, they usually take about a pint and they separate it into its components. And then they you can refrigerate red blood cells, but platelets are just stored at room temperature hmm. and can be stored there for about five days. Plasma, which is 90% water, is usually frozen and stored in freezers for up to a year. So there's like freezers around the country that are just full of plasma. Um
0: and you can get, I mean, you obviously they pay for plasma. Yes. That is one thing they do pay for.
1: Um, so 4.5 million Americans will need a blood transfusion each year. And so when we talk about public health, we're talking about population health. And mm-hmm. so we think about numbers like 4.5 million Americans. These are the people who are either um, having a hemorrhage, uh, have been in a major accident, mm-hmm. um, you know, post Pardum bleeding after giving birth, variety of other things, 4.5 million people. And so four, 43,000 pints are used each day in the U.S. and Canada, which is a lot. That's a lot of blood. It basically comes out to someone needs blood every two seconds. Wow. Which is a lot of blood. Uh, yeah, so today's medical care, much of the medical care depends on especially emergency medicine, depends on a steady supply of blood from healthy donors. Blood transfusions are given to patients in a wide range of circumstances. I mentioned uh, a few of them, mm-hmm. like car crashes, surgeries, childbirth, anemia, blood mm-hmm. disorders, cancer treatments, and mm-hmm. many others. So it's not just like one disease that this applies to. Okay, so the last thing I'll mention is, is kind of to answer the question that I had going into this, which is why is blood donation a primarily volunteer enterprise? And Mm -hmm. so this will just sort of sum that up. First, it's not actually illegal, I mentioned, to pay for blood, Mm -hmm. but it just has to be labeled as such. But think about, like, fairness. Only about 37% of people in the U.S. meet the requirements to donate blood, meaning a lot of people couldn't do it even if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Also, it might incentivize people with certain illnesses – to lie on the questionnaire or screening Uh test in order to get money, um, meaning that potentially infectious blood is being entered into the supply or has to be thrown out once it's tested positive for something, meaning you've wasted kind of everyone's time in this. Right. Also, a lot of these businesses would prey upon the poor because these are people who have a high demand for money. They want I mean to live their lives and and do what they need to do, and mm-hmm. selling their blood was a way to get some money. All you'd have to do is wait about fifty days, and you could go back or donate again or lie, you know, about when you last donated. And so, you have this like system of mostly poor people donating blood going to mostly rich people, and it's like, ugh, not yeah, great. Not great. But you kinda, mentioned kind of bad. Yeah, you mentioned plasma, in which blood is drawn, plasma separated out, and then blood cells and other components are put back into you. Uh, that one is compensated. So the FDA doesn't require paid plasma donations to be labeled. That's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like, it doesn't matter when it comes to plasma. Um, because it usually doesn't go straight into another person. It's broken down into different protein products that mm-hmm. become pharmaceuticals. And they often, um, during processing, remove or kill any virus or bacteria that are in the blood. Uh-huh. And so the risk of infection is much lower, whereas uh-huh. the, blood, the red blood cells are too fragile to undergo the same kind of processing. And so you've got less of a chance that people would, for instance, lie and have their blood into the supply uh-huh. having been paid for it. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting and kind of weird that the system relies on blood drives hosted by companies, schools, mm-hmm. places of worship, civic organizations. They comprise about half of all blood, do- blood donations in the U.S. And it's mostly, again, like 37% of the population can donate blood, mm-hmm. but only like less than 10% actually do. Of wow. that thirty-seven yeah. percent. So we, if everyone actually donated blood who is eligible to, we could essentially eliminate the blood shortages. I mean, I, that's just pretty amazing.
0: That is pretty amazing. So I kind of want to revisit sort of the 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 HIV/AIDS epidemic and how that has impacted who can donate blood. Right. So mm-hmm. you sort of mentioned. You know, HIV, something that we, you know, typically when you donate blood is something we test for, right? We want to make sure that we're not, that HIV isn't getting into the blood supply. So I'm going to read a little bit from this, um, NIH. Th- this is, there's this great article, um, done by the, um, National Institutes of Health that sort of talks about the history of the controversy. And if you're not familiar, we go and talk about it. So, The events marking the emergence of HIV in the United States and its transmission through blood and blood products are best understood in four periods. One, through the end of 1982, people were struggling to understand an emerging disease and characterize the risk of infection. Uh, The second period was in early 1983, official meetings took place and public and private decisions established the blood industry's early response to AIDS three meetings and other occasions for decision making from mid 1983 to about the end of 1983 provided many opportunities for blood banks, blood product manufacturers, regulatory agencies like the FDA, and other agencies to reconsider the decisions of early 1983. And then at the very end, or basically between 1982 and 1985, research on AIDS led to the isolation of the virus and the development of a screening test. So if you think about it, we didn't necessarily have a way to even screen for a disease that is a bloodborne pathogen until the end of 1985. And we know that basically the, I mean, the first documented sort of case of AIDS was 80, 81.
1: But even for like hepatitis and other things? Yeah.
0: So concurrently, Uh, research efforts related to viral inactivation of the anti-hemophilic factor or AHF concentrate underway since the 1970s were accelerated and completed. Um, and so, and in the 80s, it was an extremely sort of volatile time politically, and it was just kind of the perfect storm for an epidemic like this. So, the early 1980s were an unsettling time for individuals and organizations responsible for blood safety in the United States. The public's confidence in the government and public institutions generally was quickly eroding. And they talk a little bit about this later, but it actually had to do with uh, President Ford. Um, in early 1976, he urged officials at the CDC um, to engage in a crash program to immunize every American against... Um, What they thought was going to be what they thought was the swine flu, but was really the HIV epidemic and millions were vaccinated. However, some died of complications that were attributed to the vaccine. What did
1: they vaccinate them with? What did they put in that vaccine?
0: I'm not entirely sure
1: <laughs> cuz we don't today have um an HIV e, vaccine. Well,
0: they thought it was swine flu.
1: Right. Oh, when so they, it was, were sli- they were doing they were doing swine flu vaccine. So,
0: they think that this episode seems to simultaneously have reduced the self-confidence of the CDC and increased skepticism with other public health service organizations. So that <laughs> was Damn you. not great. Um and at the same time, there was hostility towards the involvement of government agencies in social matters, and this really had to do with a new with a new Republican presidential administration, aka the Reagan administration,
1: America's when, greatest president yes. ever, who definitely acknowledged the AIDS crisis. Sure,
0: and, that's uh, not uh, true, but no, um, uh, no, yep. No. Yeah, I know you're being facetious. Um, so basically, this administration has strong sentiments against government regulations, even those that address public health and safety. So, in addition, the emergence of the, of the AIDS epidemic challenged every aspect of the country's public health infrastructure. Sound familiar to the opioid uh-huh. epidemic? It brought a new focus to the importance of infectious disease at a time when attention and resources of both physicians and public health officials was turning elsewhere. The AIDS I'm glad epidemic. we've learned our lesson. Sure. I don't
1: know.
0: The AIDS epidemic called for emergency focused biomedical and behavioral research in a system based on investigator initiated basic research. The exploding number of cases called, uh, for additional resources. And new models of health care in a system increasingly concerned about costs. AIDS caused the nation to take note of homosexuality and drug use, which were easily avoided before these issues became such obvious matters of public health. And AIDS required clinicians and public health officials to address matters of personal behavior that had been heretofore taboo. Yeah. It was not great.
1: Well, there's a scene in, I think it's... And the band played on Mm -hmm. the movie Mm -hmm. where they discuss um, what to do about the blood supply. And I just remember that being like a really pivotal moment. Mm -hmm.
0: Personnel changes at the highest levels of public health service may have also influenced the federal government's response to AIDS and concerns about the safety of the blood supply. So between 1982 and 1986, the position of director for the CDC and NIH, the administrator of the FDA, and Assistant Secretary for Health all changed hands, and there were substantial intervals during which these positions were filled on an acting basis.
1: Oh, kind of like now. Oh,
0: so, so familiar. Sounds so familiar. Finally, there was also some other sort of um, historical events that seem to have influenced individuals and in organizational conduct and interpretations of the evidence about the HIV epidemic. This episode was the federal government's experience with the swine. So this is like what I was talking about earlier. Um, again, in early 1976, <laughs> at the urging of officials of the CDC, the federal government engaged in this immunization program against a disease that never materialized. Um, and then they were like, y'all, the government is dysfunctional. We don't trust you. I-, I don't know if you all remember, there's this famous line that Ronald Reagan likes to use. This isn't verbatim, but nobody likes it. Nobody likes the phrase, you know, we're from the government. We're here to help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah not a great uh, thing to run a campaign on when you're simultaneously, like, having to deal with a giant epidemic. Yeah. So here's some sort of, like, historical events. On July 16th, 1982, the CDC MMWR, or the Mortality... Morbidity, morbidity and, mortality and Mortality Weekly, weekly Report... report reports immune suppressive disorder identified in three haemophiliac patients. So this was mid-1982 when they sort of started to see ooh there's something going on with hemophiliac patients who, you know, are ones that receive
1: they would receive
0: periodic blood transfusions. Right. On the same day, the FDA's Bureau of Biologic meets to discuss opportunistic infections in hemophiliacs. So again recognition that this is HIV hasn't even happened yet. They're just starting to notice some very weird symptoms and diseases happening in people that are also happening in other populations. Also, the Public Health Service Working Group on Opportunistic Infections and Hemophiliacs, a very specific work group, yeah. meets to exchange information about three those three cases. So this is all happening on the same day. July 16th was a very busy day. Yeah. Uh, later on, uh, in July, there's a, a, the same working group meets to determine if other groups with AIDS, um, showed a similar etiology and if blood products were risk factors for AIDS. So now they're starting to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Um. In December of the same year, the MMWR reports four additional cases of hemophiliacs and one suspect cased in an infant who had received a blood transfusion. So now they're starting to see, hmm, obviously the infant isn't having sex. Like, you know, they're trying, it's start, there's all these cases that are coming, you know, to the forefront to sort of start whittling down the modes of transmission, right? In January of 83, there's a CDC public meeting to identify opportunities to prevent AIDS. Again.
1: Cause they, we first thought that it might have been an airborne.
0: Like, right. People were. We had terrified. no, right. No, I mean, people were afraid. I mean, there's to touch
1: other people. To touch other, other people. Were, like,
0: again, we hadn't even developed a way to screen anybody or test people for HIV. Cause we didn't really understand the nature of the disease or how it, how it was transmitted. Right. So again, not great. No. Um, in March, the Assistant Secretary for Health promulgates the first official PHS recommendations on the prevention of AIDS, including recommendations to avoid sexual contact with persons known or suspected of having AIDS and increase the probability of developing AIDS by having multiple sex partners. Men have like
1: med- yeah. a shot in the dark. I mean, they're you kind of using process of elimination,
0: right? Like, right. Like, interviewing people, right.
1: building a case description, and what's interesting to- here
0: is that it's not. They're not calling out gay men, even though, I mean, it was first called, I mean, it was called GRID for a long time. Oh, gosh, yeah. Right? Um, and then it, in the same month, the FDA notifies all establishments collecting source plasma and human blood for transfusion and manufacturers of plasma derivatives um, of steps to be taken to decrease the risk of blood or plasma donation by persons who might have increased risk of transmitting AIDS. Now, this is where we start to get into some, you know, discriminatory practices. Okay. Right? Which we'll talk about where we're at today. Because in a little you bit. mentioned
1: like these early MMWR reports saying that people, hemophiliacs, even a baby, are getting mm-hmm. this uh, set of symptoms. And you can just look at that and say, oh, these are not just gay men who are right. getting sick with this disease. Right. So, it's like people just decided to ignore that at first, and
0: so in December of '84, is the first tests for detecting HIV are developed and license application have been submitted to the FDA, and then in March of '85, we the FDA basically gives its blessing and we can start using HIV tests. So during this entire time, there's there's HIV in the blood supply, and you know there's multiple public health agencies, the FDA, other governmental agencies. Trying to figure out, you know, how to a detect it and then also limit exposure into the blood supply against something that they really don't necessarily completely understand.
1: So when was the virus discovered as the source of this epidemic? I don't remember what year that was.
0: Um... In eighty four, the National Cancer Institute scientists report that they've isolated a virus that causes AIDS. Oh, so eighty four. So it was eighty four. Wasn't until eighty four that.
1: So it was eighty four when they isolated the virus, and then when did they say? When did they start testing the blood supply?
0: Um, well, they start issue. Okay, so it was in eighty five that they. Okay. In eighty five, March of 85, um, FDA grants two licenses for commercial use of HIV tests and notifies all blood facilities of the test availability and schedules a workshop on its use. So, it was really probably mid-85 that we started actually okay. testing blood supplies. And keep in mind, the first HIV test wasn't necessarily super dependable. Oh. and Because we're, you know, I mean, over time, we're still working on making sure that it's... Um, reliable right yeah. valid and reliable so um but during this time of course there's a lot of discrimination it was in 1992 that essentially let's see
1: i wonder what they did with all of the blood when like they realized that we like we don't have a test yet to find out if, if this virus is in here and we know that some people are getting sick because of it did they just like Get rid of, like, all of the blood or what? I mean, that's... Can you imagine having to make that decision? I can't. I can't. Like, hey, we don't have a test for this thing, but we know that a percentage of the blood probably has it. However, you have people who need transfusions. Mm -hmm. So, you would be killing those people if you got rid of all of the blood. Mm -hmm. But you'd also be potentially giving more people this illness that there isn't even really treatment for Mm -hmm. if you... Don't get rid of the blood. So, oh boy.
0: Yeah, that's, that's like an ethical. That's, that's an ethical dilemma, if I ever heard that one. I'll have to research. Yeah. More about so in eighty three, I'll just give you some. These are some of the federal recommendations they made in in uh, eighty three. So the Public Health Service made the following recommendations for preventing AIDS transmission. Sexual contact should be avoided with persons known to have or suspected of having AIDS. Avoid sex with multiple partners or those who have, who have, may have multiple partners. Members of groups at increased risk of AIDS should not donate plasma and or blood products. Studies, um, let's see, studies should be conducted to evaluate screening procedures for their effectiveness in identifying and excluding plasma and blood with high
1: probability of transmitting
0: AIDS, including lab tests and physical exams. Um, so
1: what does it mean when it said like certain groups, yes. but it doesn't, does it define what those groups are? Do they give them names or is it like, you know, you know who you are? Mm, what?
0: Yeah, they definitely uh, made some very, uh, yeah. But- but we
1: know that the, that the virus can be transmitted obviously to women, teens, heterosexual people, as well as homosexual people, and through other types of means. So mm-hmm. it's like, why? I mean, I I guess that's the information they had at the time. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, how long did those, um, did those rules stay in place, even when we knew the science?
0: Well, that's a really great question, Quinn, because it wasn't until... So basically, you know... Um, there's a couple statements that I, I think are really interesting. So, um, obviously there was a lot of discrimination against, um, against gay men regarding whether or not they could donate blood. And, um, there was a lot of actual, uh, debate in the CDC. So the CDC had a public meeting in, on January 4th of 1983 in looking at how to prevent AIDS. So the meeting produced a great deal of debate, but no consensus on specific action. Donald Francis, assistant director for medical science of the Division of vi- Virology at, at the CDC, recommended that blood banks question donors directly about their sexual behavior and run blo- blood donations through a series of surrogate tests, the use of non-specific laboratory markers, including a test for, hepat- for the hepatitis B core antibody, which showed an 88% correlation with, pa- with patients who had AIDS. Some meeting participants opposed this recommendation because of the cost of the test and for other reasons. Gay activist groups objected to the screening measures, claiming that they were discriminatory towards their members. Many meeting participants were not convinced by the evidence that AIDS was transmitted by blood or blood products. Dennis Donahue, director of the FDA's Division of Blood and Blood Products, stated that research on processes for inactivating viruses in blood products was underway. Um,
1: but I mean, we have donor screening now. And, like, we do. they ask you all these questions, and right. they sometimes go very quickly.
0: And it wasn't until 2015 that um, the FDA reversed its position. Well, I should say, it didn't reverse it. It sort of lightened it up. But basically, up until 2015, men who have sex with men were not... They had a lifetime ban from donating blood, which is extremely controversial. Even though for obvious reasons.
1: be... Transmit ah. Right,
0: right. So um, if you go to the Red Cross's page, they have a um, basically eligibility requirements and they have LGBTQ plus donors. And there's a specific page dedicated to who can and who cannot donate blood. In 2015, they said, well, based on the science presented from the Centers for Disease Control and the federal, uh, the FDA, um we're now just basically making it a 12-month deferment, meaning that a, a person who has sex with men would have to ha- to be celibate for 12 months in order to donate blood. The problem with all of this, which you, of course, alluded to, is that this scientific recommendation is based on one's membership to a group and not to their risk behavior. Right. Because many gay men have protected sex. Yeah. Many heterosexual people have unprotected sex. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not to say that people can lie, right? I mean, and that was something that they had to deal with throughout the history of blood
1: donation, well, right? Why, why was it um, 12 months, for
0: So, instance? I'll give you an example. So, their reasoning for 12 months is that Typically, the the HIV screening test that we have now it takes a three month period from the time you were exposed to the time you could be tested. Or basically, it's three months until there's enough antibodies in your blood for the test to detect whether or not you have the virus.
1: So you could have the virus, but it's at that point undetectable.
0: Right. It hasn't yet. Which happens a lot. Yeah. Um, So in that
1: period of time, you could donate blood, not actually right. Uh, test positive right and okay
0: so 12 months is like I think a pretty safe window to make sure that a person would detect positive for HIV if they did donate blood however again
1: you're not uh, you're not getting everyone right who could have engaged in risky behavior
0: right And like I was explaining to somebody earlier today I I used to do HIV testing and counseling. And when I ask people, you know, when I first sit down with somebody and I do the, the little the little finger prick, um, I don't say, Hey, are you a gay man? Do you right. have sex with men? I ask them what their risk factors are. Like, do you have unprotected sex? Have you been in jail recently? Do you um, you know, use intravenous drugs? you know, I asked what the actual risk factors are that would contribute to a mode of transmission. Right. Right. Because again, it's not about the association of, a you know, the association to a group. It's about mm-hmm. what you've been doing. Yeah. So, and that's actually the position of the human rights campaign. You know, a lot of um, LGBTQ organizations and actually a lot of sci- of the scientific community feel like this is really discriminatory. Because again, it's not based on, risk factors it's based on membership of a stigmatized group
1: yeah and and it's less specific than yeah actually um drilling down to the risk factors right so right so where is it now like where are we now That's is where it still the 12 months still
0: the 12 month. oh yeah so um i and honestly i I mean, I kind of had to chuckle, um, at their questions and answers. Yeah. On the eligibility, because some of the questions are just like really great. Do I really have to be celibate for 12 months before giving blood? Which I just think is like such a real question. Yeah. Like, cause that would be my question. Like, do I really?
1: Um, and, and what, what do you, what does the, this thing even define as celibacy? Like
0: and it, I, so here's what it says from the FDA revised guidance. It says defer for 12 months from the most s- recent sexual contact.
1: What about just the tip? I mean, I would say
0: <laughs> I mean, you really want that that yeah. that's, that's a whole other episode about sex ed Quinn. Sexual <laughs> sexual health.
1: Um, there are other there are many different ways.
0: And yeah, what is sexual contact?
1: There are many ways. It
0: could be just like rubbing to somebody's say nipple. I love you. <laughs> oh. Like, like just rubbing, rub- your nipple. just rubbing nipples. I mean, that's... You
1: could do that. And dry humping in the backseat of your car. Sure. Um Have I just...
0: I'm in a monogamous relationship. Mr. Ross, Can I donate blood? Nope. Um I'm a man who's not had sex with another man in more than 12 months. Can I donate blood? Yes. Um, But if you've been previously deferred from donating blood, you need to call the Donor and Client Support Center. I'm a trans man, and I have been eligible to donate because my assigned sex at birth was female. However, I have had sex with another man. Can I donate blood? Yeah. You wanna hear what the here here's what it is. Individuals who identify as male and have sex with another man within Ugh, the twelve and I don't months. Like that. Identify I know, as male. I know. In the past twelve months will be deferred under the MSM policy. So even if you are a trans man and you have sex with another man, you get the twelve month deferment.
1: Which means You can't. You You can't. You can't.
0: You can't. No. I'm a trans woman and have not been eligible to donate blood because my assigned sex at birth was male. And I had sex with a man. Can I donate blood? Individuals who identify as female and have sex with a man may be eligible to donate blood. What? Isn't this crazy? That doesn't make
1: any sense. Isn't this crazy? According to their rules, it doesn't even make sense. Right? And also, I, I don't like the phrase identifies as uh-huh. a woman, because they are a woman. Right, right. It's not, yeah. Right. This is a great one.
0: Don't you test every unit of blood, question mark? Yes. The Red Cross tests each unit of donated blood for a number of infectious diseases. While testing has greatly improved is now 100% effective at detecting infectious disease in donors with very early infection. The FDA-selected the 12-month deferral to provide adequate timing for detection of infection. Like, I, like, I, uh, but yes. Yeah. Yes. Even though it is 2019, um, if you are gay or if you are a person who has sex with a man, clearly it's still, like, extremely complicated, but, uh, you can't give blood. Even if you're monogamous. Even if you wear a condom every single time and use lube. And you're, like, just super on it. You get an HIV test every three months. But a
1: heterosexual person who does all of those same behaviors can give blood. Yep. Even though the risk behaviors are exactly the same. Yep. Cool, 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 cool. And considering only 37% of the population can, like, meeting the physical criteria, you have to be a certain height, certain weight, you know, right. uh, you know, right. all of those, yeah. I mean, we're talking about the criteria, but like the physical above 18, you know, blah, 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 in good shape. Um, the certain cholesterol, you know, blood sugar, all of that stuff, like your blood is healthy and you're healthy. Only 37% of the population mm-hmm. can. And then even then less than 10% actually do. And we're basically eliminating more people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who would, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who would donate. Yep. Yeah, Um, even though we
0: have, we are, yep, we are in a blood
1: shortage. Right. So. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Is there anything going on now to fix that?
0: That's a really, really good question. I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, obviously there's been calls from different organizations to change the policy, but there hasn't really been movement to change it. Since 2015, I mean, you know, the FDA changed its policy then. But huh.
1: well, I'm gonna keep my eye on that. Yeah, and hope that I don't need a transfusion. I hope you don't need a transfusion.
0: I man, me too.
1: One of my favorite memories from a blood donation drive in college was um, I didn't even really remember realize it until I got on the bus, but all of the blood drive staff and the phlebotomists mm-hmm. were all dressed up as vampires because it was oh, Halloween my. week.
0: Oh, my. I love it so and much. I was like,
1: that is awesome. That
0: is so great. Yeah. So I was just going to say, have? um well, um I will say that this discriminatory policy, I'm just going to say it, it's a discriminatory policy, was really brought to light around the poll shooting because. Yeah. Yep. Um,
1: yeah, many, I imagine many people in right, the community wanted to right. help out.
0: So, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the LGBTQ community totally came out, wanted to donate blood and were turned away. So that was sort of a, a pretty big slap in the face for that particular community. Um,
1: what if you're neither a man nor a woman?
0: Oh, you know what? I think they have. What points. if
1: you are a nine, on a, what if you're non binary? That's a great question.
0: Um, okay. So individuals who identify as gender nonconforming, gender queer, gender fluid, agender, or nonbinary. The Red Cross values all potential blood donors and under blood, blood don- donors. Wow. Okay. And understands that selecting either male or female may not align with some, how some individuals identify. Oh,
1: God.
0: The Red Cross also knows that there's a difference between biological sex and gender. The FDA revised guidance states, in the context of donor history questionnaire, the FDA recommends that male or female gender be taken to be self-identified and self-reported. The FDA requires the Red Cross have donors select either male or female.
1: That was just a long-winded way of saying screw you, basically. Yeah.
0: <sighs> they even have that one for asexual
1: donors. Very disappointing.
0: So, if I'm asexual, which means I don't have sex with other people, yeah, you can do an
1: Again, you're you're identifying people by a label and not R- by the risk like, behavior.
0: I mean, again, it exactly. It should just be,
1: rather than listing out all of these these labels for, for groups of people, just the risk behavior. Mm-hmm. It should be the risk behavior because that's what actually matters. Mm-hmm. Oh, man.
0: I will say, so after Pulse, um, Congressman Mike Honda who's uh, in, introduced the, which, of course, you know how much they love their acronyms, Deliver for Our Nation at Times of Emergency Act or the Donate Act.
1: Oh, uh, nope.
0: That would require the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to amend its blood donor screening standards during times of national or local need. Tammy Baldwin, Senator, I'm sorry, Senator Tammy Baldwin, um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Congressman Mike Quickley, among others, also criticized the FDA's policy and spearheaded letters from bipartisan groups, um, calling for a new policy that is rooted in scientific evidence and urging the FDA to adopt an approach to donor eligibility based on individual risk. Um, this was, a, this article came out in 2016. Um, in response, the FDA has released a request for public comment. On its current federal policy. Let me see if you can still, I feel like you can.
1: Just submit this podcast episode to them.
0: Yeah, you can. You can still submit comments online about this, um, donation or about this, uh, blood donation policy. I, I I will put the, we'll put the link in the, in the show notes. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, apparently we're still sort of living in 1983, y'all. Oh boy. But donate blood.
1: Yeah. Actually, it was reminding me that I need to donate. Yeah, it's important. Um oh negative. Nice. I
0: know.
1: You've got that that good stuff.
0: i got that good, good blood. Mm. <laughs> what are... I mean, I guess I shouldn't just ask you what your blood type
1: is. Oh, come on, Lindsay. This is like... I know. It's like gosh,
0: HIPAA restrictions over
1: here. You don't just ask... For, what's the line from Mean Girls? You can't just ask someone.
0: You can't just ask... Yeah, what was that?
1: Oh, my uh, God. Oh, you can't just ask someone if they're white. <laughs> <laughs> I am A+. plus. Which is apparently, like, the most common. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I think, like, 30% of the population has that one. Oh. So I should be pretty good, hopefully.
0: Well, you, clearly you know somebody who can donate blood to you.
1: Yeah, because you are one um, of the universal donor. Yep. And the, you want to know what the universal recipient is? AB? Yeah, I believe it's AB positive.
0: If you didn't hear me, I was, like, tapping my vein.
1: Yeah, you've got their... Got that sweet, sweet... Very nice.
0: What do the Greek gods... Like, what do the Greek gods call their blood?
1: Well, ambrosia was nectar of the gods. Right. That was something else.
0: I'm going to look that up.
1: What do Greek gods call their blood? This sounds like the setup to a joke. Ikor. Ikor? Ikor. Ikor. Oh, okay. Well, Um, file that away. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For, I, I guess mean, a crossword puzzle? Sure. I, I, I mean,
0: I've just been listening to a lot of Greek mythology podcasts lately. So, well, I'm like, let's just transition
1: then into what we are liking. What are we doing right now? What's, what's happening outside of the, or, or, or related to public health, but what's kind of, what's, what's,
0: what's, what's, uh, you know, like what's floating, what's floating your boat right now?
1: Um, I just finished a really good book called The Immortalists oh. a Novel by mm-hmm. Chloe Benjamin. Um, I've been trying to read more fiction and more fiction by um, women authors, uh, people of color, uh, not just white dudes. And uh, this is a really good book. It's got some magical realism in it. It's cool. got some, you know, family drama and redemption and tragedy and it's like just it was a good book to get lost in i would like to read her other book um i don't remember what it's called but it's supposed to be really good Hmm. yeah um and i've been watching deadwood
0: oh how is that because
1: there's a movie that just came out on um on hbo Hmm. um and i was like i should go watch that show because i Missed it, and it's, like, right up my alley. Mm
0: -hmm. So,
1: I've been doing that.
0: I've been reading Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Cool. Really enjoy it. Again, (laughs) like... And I also listen to um, Let's Talk About Myths, Baby.
1: Very good. Which is a
0: great Greek myth podcast if you love Greek myths and you love feminism. Uh, Um, It's super good. And it sort of also aligns with the fact that I'm obsessed with a webcomic called Lore Olympus. I... What have I been watching? I'm just going to, like, come clean. I've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm lately. Oh, nice.
1: I have not watched that.
0: Oh, my God. It's really funny, but the character that Larry... I mean, obviously, he's, like, portraying himself, but he's... A
1: version of himself. A
0: version of himself. He is an awful human being. (laughs) Awful. It's like Seinfeld meets Arrested Development. Gotcha. So, and of course, Larry David... Is the creator of Seinfeld. So, uh, it's really funny. I mean, it's really funny, but he is such a piece of human garbage. Oh, like, cool. Um, but in a way that's, I guess, I don't know. I think it's entertaining. Is entertaining, yes. Yeah. Um, I did finish watching Chernobyl.
1: Oh, that was good. Which was so good. So good. Yeah. Did you listen to the podcast?
0: I haven't, but it's on my list. Oh, it's good. Yeah. It's wow. Yeah. I mean, I was talking, um, to James about this. It's just, you know, you hear about Chernobyl and you don't, I, I just feel like until I watched this show, I didn't really understand the scope of the disaster and mm-hmm. just how Bad it
1: was. Well, yeah, the exclusion zone today—you can't go in it. You have to get a special permission, and they well, track. Well, there's your, a whole
0: tourism industry dedicated to like. They track, going yeah. To it. They
1: track the amount of radiation. Yeah. You, um, you you accumulate while you're there, and so, yeah, it's um, it's still incredibly radioactive. Uh, and and you to know? think of how many like nuclear bombs and stuff there are just in warehouses mm-hmm. and. You know, just how like we're messing with this stuff that is incredibly powerful.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, um, it was a really well done show. Um, I think it, it just really hits home. I think, you know, the lengths that people in power will go to hide things. Um, and just basically the culture of censorship and, you know, um, Lies that, and not to say that, like you know, the Soviet Union was the only country to engage in that kind of um, stuff. But
1: whoa, yeah. Well, you should listen to the podcast too because it provides a lot of um, context. Context. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Great radio radioactivity. Giant piece of human garbage named Larry David. Just like a lot of stuff going on in my
1: life. Are you okay? <laughs>
0: I, I'm, I'm doing okay. I admittedly, um, and I'm just going to share this. I recently started seeing a therapist and God, I highly recommend it.
1: I know it's, it's It's so good.
0: I, and I want to be very positive about, you know, mental wellness and openly admit I should have seen a therapist a long time ago and I'm really glad that I am. So if you're thinking about it, just do it.
1: Yeah, just do it.
0: I mean, it, I know it's hard for some people because of, like, insurance coverage and all of that. And I'm going through that same issue right now as well. But one day at a time, you know?
1: Yeah. And even if you have insurance, finding a therapist yes. and actually scheduling the appointment and actually going, it it's uh, emotionally it, taxing.
0: It is. It really is.
1: But so. it's worth it.
0: Totally worth it. So I'm doing good. Cool. Doing better.
1: Good. It's so. a journey.
0: It, it's all a journey.
1: Yeah. You know? Well, on that note, yeah, uh, we are going to wrap up today's episode. Um, Find us on Twitter, Viral Podcast, on Facebook, and on the interwebs at www.viral pod.com. Our um, intro and outro music is Take Your Medicine by uh, the Quick and Easy Boys. Uh, So thank you for that. Um,
0: Yeah, and if you ever, you know, if you have a suggestion for a future topic, let us know. Um, there's an email form on our, uh, website, so please use that and make sure you get us
1: a review. Yeah. Give us a review on that note. Remember to wash your hands. Wash your hands. Gross. Yeah. Get your bloody hands washed. Wash
0: them.